Well, it hasn't happened yet. I'm Brian. I'm Carrie. This is Isaac. And today we have, well, two good things, big things are happening. It's, it's our 20th episode, and I can say without even a shadow of, of irony that it's felt like five times that uh, length uh, with both of you. No, I'm kidding. But 20 episodes in. 20 episodes in uh, of Until We Get Cancelled. Haven't gotten cancelled yet. It's amazing. Uh, and, and to mark that occasion, we have our, our first ever return guest. Uh, Hannah Bowman is, is back to talk more abolition. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Our listeners, if they exist, just couldn't get enough of the abolition. They needed more. <laughs> there's, a, there's a certain amount of freedom in not having out listeners because you can do whatever the hell you want, right? It's just like, we, I, I bet the listeners... It's like it's like people that people are actually don't think that we have producers. So when we say, "Hey, producers, can you cut that out?" They think we're kidding. But we actually do have producers. So I'm going to make the assumption that we also have listeners out there, and then they've been clamoring for this for this follow up episode. Too scared to find out how many people actually <laughs> listen to the pod because I need this for my self esteem. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I had there are thousands of you. <laughs> So of all the thousands, we'll take we'll take twenty of you if you can if you can uh, rate and review twenty. We'll we'll consider that a, 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 a the the perfect the amount of uh, what I don't know what I'm trying to say the mathematical equation from a thousand goes to twenty that makes sense to me. But that's not what we came on to talk about today. No, we do need some some more reviews because we got a one star and we need to like balance it out. Yeah. So review this and rate on your Apple Pod to take away the one star. Yeah. What did the one star say? They didn't say anything. They just one star. Yeah, coward. <laughs> coward. Cowards. Maybe uh, it's the University of Texas president. <laughs> Jay Hartzell himself listens to the pod. Oh, God. Um, it was Chili's. It was their corporate account. They were pissed about the fight corner. Listen, if we can somehow get Chili's to tweet about us, I'm, I'm 100% for it. Uh, get only it. if they're disavowing us. They right. Oh, yeah. Disavow yeah, we, we, we don't want them to like start it like a, like have an app named after us, like the canceled, uh, canceled Chipotle uh, uh, rap or something like we don't want that. We want, yeah, we need to be disavowed by Chili's um, and, and their parent corporation. So well, this is started Whatever off. Chili's is closest to Carrie needs to like post video proof that they're not fighting people in the parking lot. Yeah, well, I don't know which Chili's is closest to me, but <laughs> that would be incredible to be a disavowed by my hometown Chili's. <laughs> <laughs> and you thought podcasting was going to be an embarrassment, Carrie. <laughs> Look what it's brought to your life. All right. So abolition. Yeah, 20 episodes in, uh, we've lost it. We've officially lost the thread. Abolition. <laughs> uh, Isaac, I think that you had sort of a direction you wanted us to go in today. Um, yeah, you know, we touched on it a little bit last week when we, or a couple weeks ago when we got into the discussion about the harrowing of hell. But um, Hannah, I wanted part of the reason why I wanted to continue our conversation is so we could just talk about like what abolition um, practices look like when it comes to theology and how can what we learn from prison abolition help us identify bad theology, especially around the atonement as we get closer to Holy Week. So when you think about how your faith is related to the movement of prison abolition, where do you start? What, what's the first jumping off point for you? So for me, part of what's been really interesting in getting involved in abolition is that abolition has become a source for my theology. 
So I really don't sit, I don't start with, here's Christian theology and look, abolition is a consequence. But for me, I started learning about abolition and it really was like a renewal of my theology. And what's been useful for me in my own work and especially my academic work is to be able to say, okay, how do we take these, these concepts, right, that are being talked about much more seriously in abolition and transformative justice communities than they are in the church. And how do we bring those into our context and let them affect us? So like, I'll give you a not super technical example, a much more practical example, which is that like, I am always shocked that I have learned more about accountability from transformative justice communities than I have ever heard about it in church, right? And maybe that's a mainline thing, but like mainline churches do not want to talk about how are we responsible to one another in our relationships? And like, how do we harm one another? And what do we do when that happens? We do not want to have that conversation. We don't want the conflict, right? We want to be a space where everyone can come and then like basically leave unchanged. And that's not quite fair because I think everybody in a mainline church would love for people to be changed, but we're not, but not enough to intentionally build the relationships and the spaces that, that are going to provoke that, right? And, um, and not enough to recognize that change does not come without conflict, I would say. Um, this is a broad overgeneralization. I'm sure that it is not fair to any individual church, but it is sort of what I've noticed over, overall. So I started learning about accountability from transformative justice spaces, and they're mostly LGBTQ movement, activist spaces, people of color, mostly women of color running these conversations or, or facilitating these conversations. And as they're having these conversations about doing justice outside the system, what comes up over and over again is, well, it's not enough to do a, a restorative process or a transformative justice process or an accountability process, but you really have to be thinking about how you're building practices of accountability all the time in your communities, right? Mia Mingus says you have to practice with the small things so that you can deal with the big things. So it's not sort of a separable or like professionalized process. It's just how we live in community. And I started thinking, boy, what would it be like if our churches were communities like that, if we were thinking about our churches as accountable communities, if we were thinking about how do we think of our responsibility to one another, like what would it be like to really conceive of our churches as a body where we're responsible to one another, where we're intentionally building these relationships of accountability rather than as sort of a public forum where we want to welcome people in, but we don't quite know what to do with people once they're in. Right. So that's one like very concrete example that has really profoundly shifted my thinking and shifted my thinking about things like sacraments, about, well, what's the sacrament of confession for, if not a relationship of accountability? Right. How do we talk about excommunication in the Eucharist? And I am not team excommunication, I'm going to say. But how do we talk about the, the role of ethics in the Eucharist, except through this lens of like non-hierarchical accountability? So it gives us a way of structuring our church relationships that's not about like orthodoxy or hierarchy or like, here's the church that's right and you are wrong, but it's something that's much more mutual and is about what we owe to one another. Yeah, I think what you said about we invite them in and we don't know what to do with them is so poignant for churches. Um, I think that there is a severe, and this is something I've said a thousand times in our, in our 20 episodes, uh, subscribe and, and review. Uh, I, but I've said it a thousand, sorry, I'm just going to be that guy from now on. I'm just going to plug things. No, but I think that, like I've said it before is like, we, we don't actually try to create any kind of like discipleship habits or thoughts or anything. We, we, we're so like, scared that people are going to leave and go to a different church, that there is no ever expectation. So if there's no expectation, there's never going to be an accountability for them. Well, 
And I think related to that is that like every church I have ever visited, when you ask them what's great about your church, every church says, oh, we're so welcoming. Yeah. It's like, first of all, not true. But second of all, (laughs) not the goal. I mean, it's fine. It's good to be welcoming. I understand that particularly for churches that came out of that are, are in the middle of or are coming out of the sort of LGBTQ inclusion wars, that welcoming can be a really radical act of discipleship, but most of the time it's not. Most of the time it means we think of ourselves as friendly and it makes us happy when people show up. And there's nothing more there. And for me, abolition is one way of saying, it's not just about like the political, right? It's not just about we should be changing the world in a radical political way. It's also about saying, hey, church, let's 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 be church, let's do church, let's build communities that are fundamentally different than the way that we engage with people outside, right? Like that fundamentally are a transformed way of understanding relationship. And obviously I'm drawing on these sources that are not Christian sources. So it's not that you can't have those relationships outside the church, but rather that there is somehow an idea that like the way we interact, the way we build community, the way we solve our problems shouldn't look the same as the prevailing culture. And we have no interest in that, right? Like we're all like, hey, we're mandated reporters. We call the police. That's that's just who we are. That's how we fit into this culture. Mm. After Carrie told me that Dick Cheney was a United Methodist, <laughs> I am team excommunication. And now I'm no longer team open communion. I just wanted to put oh, that out there. <laughs> Isaac, <laughs> well, so is John Wesley. So you're you're fine. You're you're in you're within your uh, you're within your cult your tradition there. So well, I've read like I've read Torture in Eucharist, right? Which is really William Kavanaugh's book that makes this argument. And his argument is we want the church to be a social body that can stand against the violent disciplines of the world, and excommunication is a way of making that body visible. My problem with it is he frames it in all this solidarity work. He frames it in all this radical work that the church in Chile was doing or was really failing to do in response to to Pinochet, but ultimately. He, I, for me, he doesn't deconstruct the fact that excommunication is always going to be this like punitive prison logic of exclusion, right? Like prisons work by punishing and banishing. I think we talked about this last time. And that if the church is doing that, how how is that working, right? Like I'm way more interested in acts of protest solidarity that's like, look, if Dick Cheney walks into your church, he can take communion because Jesus's broken body is for sinners, but nobody else should at the same time, right? All the rest <laughs> of you do not participate. I'm serious. Yeah, yeah. Like, like I think there's much more profound ways to say, hey, there's a break in this fellowship, but we're not going to turn it around in any way that could be conceived of as punitive on you, the person who's done wrong. We're going to say, yup, God loves you. And also this is wrong and you're doing harm to us. And we're going to make that visible. Right now, that's a hard thing, but... You just broke yeah, my I, you just broke my brain about the everybody should not take communion if Dick Cheney comes to your church. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm 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 down with that, and, and I'm thinking about something that uh, I think Melissa Flora Bixler said on our on a, when we had her on the this podcast before Isaac when she was talking about how their church actually won't let people I don't know if they won't let people take communion or they won't let people join who are involved in like the military complex industry or uh, prisons maybe uh, things like that and how that's a c- tough conversation that she has uh, has to have with people when they kind of want to be connected with their community so yeah, and I, and I, I I'll, I'll admit that I struggle with that a little bit because and and it's just it's mostly because I probably just don't have good enough clear thinking on this but like the, the difference between excommunication and accountability, it seems like people can get lost in between those two. Like, where does accountability start? If it's, you know, if there's not, if you were going to say no excommunication, then it, how does accountability look after that? Like, I, I think that there is a great right. area in there. And that's what makes people be like, well, we'll just give it to everybody and we'll never make any kind of stand. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I think I, there's I think a... There's- 
I think there's a gray area too. And I have also talked to like Anabaptist pastors who will say, yeah, I wouldn't baptize a cop, right? So there's that's a different way. I think like there's a very strong witness in the Anabaptist tradition of saying this is this is our community. It is intentional. This is what you have to live by to be part of it. And, and baptism, communion, church membership, all of those things are, are related. I'm not quite comfortable with that myself. And it's because now, look, I'm a big open communion proponent. I'm a community unbaptized proponent. And for me, that's because I have a wacky, like high church, real presence, Eucharistic theology. And I think that in the elements is literally the body and blood of Jesus. And the body and blood of Jesus is in this absurd and obscene way given for the worst parts of humanity, right? So like, for me, there's something profound about saying no, Dick Cheney gets to take communion because Jesus is there for Dick Cheney, but the rest of us are going to make it clear that we're not at peace, right? The rest of us are going to stand because I think the, the, the like wicked problem of excommunication, the thing that makes it hard is that you're right. You have to be able to say, here's a boundary. You have to be able to say, we're not going to just stand for nothing. Communion's for everybody. It doesn't mean anything, right? It doesn't, doesn't require anything of us. You have to be able to draw those lines, but at the same time, I don't see how you can do it with the church on the inside and we're excommunicating the bad people without replicating the carceral logic of exclusion. Mm. So that's why I'm, I'm leaning on this kind of like, how do you do it? How do you do it as somebody who has been harmed as like an act of like, I don't even want to say sacrifice because it's such a loaded term, right? And I don't want to say this is something everybody who's been harmed must do because like putting more burdens on those who've been harmed is obviously not what we're going to do, right? But I think there's something to be said about like, particularly for bystander solidarity, if you know someone's been harmed, you can you can show I'm not at peace with this without replicating punishment. And that's where that's where the accountability conversation gets really hard. I mean, I, I'm... It, I'm let me say, I'm not team excommunication, but I don't blame those who are, right? Because I think there is a real argument for, for saying that, for, for insisting on that boundary. I just also, I, I think presenting accountability in a way that is not punitive and in a way that is not about saying, we don't want to have anything to do with you is hard. It's the same thing about consequences, right? Saying you can't be in a position of power has to be different than saying you don't have a place with us and figuring out how to walk that line between power and ability to contribute, which is, I think, part of being having a place is a hard, a hard place to be and a place where the church has not traditionally done a very good job. Yeah. And I, I, I struggle with all of this. I think this is actually, Hannah, how you and I, uh, came to know each other uh, online is, is because one of your communion takes was like, oh no, what is this literary agent talking about? Communion takes. I, was like, I don't need this in my life. Unfollow. No, I, I'm kidding. Uh, but I, I think that like, for me, one of the struggles is like, I kind of came up and I've always seen something like communion as like a means of grace, like something that can like offer and bring about reconciliation. And, and I realized that that's easy to argue against, but I, I think like, that's just kind of where I, that's, for me, like if somebody wants to take communion, like my first instinct is, okay, well, why are they wanting to, to receive communion right now? And it might just be performative because they're there and they feel like they have to. So I like, I like leaving in space for that, I guess, um, because otherwise you get to the place where Episcopalians like, we're not going to let anybody who's not been baptized take communion. It's like, well... And so slowly you start to get down the slippery slope for me where it becomes... And I know, where, I know I'm getting off track here, so I, I'll bring us back around. But it's like... I. I don't know. That's that place. I like the the kind of the the ability for the the spirit, so so to speak, to move within the, in a body of worship to be able to have somebody have that moment of like, okay, uh, my heart has been convicted on this. All right, 
tell me I'm naive. <laughs> I, I agree with you. And I think part of maybe one way of getting at this, like this weird, this weird, nobody else communes with Dick Cheney take, right? Which I know is, is a weird and a hard thing. And again, like, I'm not saying you have to do it. But part of my approach to that is that the problem with excommunication is you're forcing something, you're forcing yourself into somebody else's relationship with Jesus, right? Sure. Like, like fundamentally, I, I agree with you that there's space in communion for like, if somebody feels drawn to that, how is the spirit going to work in it? And I don't want to say, oh, we're not going to let that happen. But a big part of the accountability mindset that I've gotten from transformative justice, right, is that you can't hold people accountable. You can only hold space so that people can take accountability. So you can't control how other people are going to react. And so that's where, when it comes to communion, I come down on, I can choose if I am willing to, if I am able to take communion with you, right? If you are in this space, I can choose if I am at peace and if the spirit is working in me for me to be able to receive Jesus right there with you. I can't control what you're going to do, right? And I shouldn't try. So I shouldn't say, no, we're going to excommunicate you. You're not part of us. We've decided you can't have this relationship with Jesus. But I can say, I don't want to be part of this while you are. Does that make sense? And again, like this is not without its own challenges. It's, it's a horrible thing to say, oh, well, I guess people who've done harm get to take communion and their victims just shouldn't if they don't want to. Like, no, I, I'm not suggesting that as a blanket policy, right? But I do think there can be this like powerful way of turning around the logic and kind of interrogating that logic of excommunication while still maintaining the need to say, hey, there's a difference. And I think like, for example, if you find yourself in a place where a survivor of harm feels like they can't take communion because the person who harmed them is still there, mm -hmm. that's a sign of a bigger problem you have to address, right? That's a sign that says, hey, we need to have separate spaces so that we can be with both of these people in a way that is safe for the survivor, for example, right? So it doesn't have to be about, it doesn't have to be about reconciliation to be about meeting the needs of both parties. Yeah, yeah. I think the I think Dick Cheney I, part, well, the Dick Cheney part threw me off. I think when you bring it down to that, to that level of like somebody harmed me here and how we think about sacramental theology, like I think that there's just a lack of now, like a lack of good sacramental theology in a lot of churches. Sorry, I, I managed to cut off both Isaac and Carrie with that <laughs> comment. So go ahead. Well, I think a good point that you made that uh, I've been thinking about in this discussion was how being a, like in, in an accountable community, being in the community is not the same as having a place of power in the community, which I think we skated past a little bit, but I thought it was really good. <laughs> and uh, this is, I don't want to relitigate this, but it's just the most expedient example that I could think of. But I was thinking about the Washington National Cathedral fiasco. And when I was talking about that on this podcast, I said that Dean Hollerith uh, should resign. <laughs> um, but I, I think in the context of abolition, I guess I was just thinking about that because like, I would not want to take communion from Dean Hollerith, though he is a, you know, ordained person who can, who could do that for me. It wouldn't like, and he has more power in that situation than I do because I'm not ordained and I can't, you know, make the Eucharist happen for myself. I don't, I just, I, I've, I was thinking about that as we were talking about this, because um, in, a, in a, a world of true accountability, I think that the, the Episcopal Church's reaction to that particular situation, right, wouldn't have been a listening session or wouldn't have been Dean Hollerith writing like a couple of like mealy-mouthed apology letters, but would have been some form of like true equality between 
the dean and the people that he's harmed, which were LGBTQ Episcopalians in this situation. I don't, I, I don't know where else I'm going with that. I think you're raising something really important, and I'm actually going to sort of push back against myself here for a second, because I think you're raising something really important, which is this, how in the church do we negotiate the relationship between ministry and power, right? Because I agree that people who have abused their power should not have power, right? Like that, that, that is a, that is an appropriate consequence. You don't leave people in positions of power where they can do harm. But I also think that if we want people to be part of a community, we have to give them a valuable way to contribute to the community, right? So it can't be, oh, well, you get to be here and we'll minister to you, but you can't take part in that work anymore. So I actually get a little bit I argue a lot with clergy about this. I get a little bit uh, heated about that sort of like, well, we should get rid of people's ordination and they can never get it back. And you can't possibly be an ordained person if you've done harm. Because I think that there's so many questions of differentiated ways of ministry and differentiated responsibility and properly understood ordination or ministry should not grant you power over others, right? You should not be able to be in power over others if you've done harm. But you know, so much of the work that, that I have seen in transformative justice or in things like circles of support and accountability is about hurt people and people who have done harm being involved in helping the healing of other people who have done harm, right? And so I am not comfortable saying there's no place for you to do your part of this work, for you to do ministry, for you to, you know, contribute in that in those ways that God is calling you to. I'm actually not comfortable saying there's a hard bar. You can't possibly do that. The only reason you can't do it is because we've constructed the church as a place where you can't do ministry without having power over. And as long as we understand ministry as power over, it's not safe for people to do that, right? But if we go deeper, more radical, and stop understanding ministry as being about power over, how can we construct spaces where people can still contribute in ways that are appropriate in ways that are part of taking accountability in ways that are making amends to the community, right? And not without giving them the ability to do further harm. So that's like probably my least popular take. <laughs> this is the episode where we <clears throat> all become Anabaptist. Uh, I mean, I, so there's a lot going on, I think, in, in some of these things that I, I just want to sort of bring attention to. The first thing is that we haven't really, at least in the United Methodist context, I mean, we're, I think we're the largest, at least mainline church that has open communion. The reason why we have it is different than the ones that we've articulated on this podcast. And uh, I think it's worth pointing out because I, yeah, I don't even think the theology really from a like, why are we doing this standpoint has been... Uh, articulated in a very helpful way. But the reason why Wesley thought open communion was an important thing is because he thought communion was a means of conversion. Like that if someone like Dick Cheney took communion, that suddenly he might renounce his, uh, you know, his ways or confess his sins or <clears throat> whatever else. And I think that, I think that that's bad theology. Like, I, I don't think that that's how... <laughs> I mean, I think that's turning, um, you know, the Eucharist into like a magic pill or something like that. So the reasons why the UMC has open communion suck, but the reality is, is on the other side of it, the invitation we give to the altar does not also at the same time necessitate open communion. It certainly doesn't require baptism. It doesn't require being a United Methodist, but it, we do say uh, Christ invites to His table all who seek to live in peace with one another, and you know. Melissa's ghost is sort of hovering over this entire episode because she's just cackling while we all talk about 
dismantling the hierarchy of the church. But, you know, <laughs> she came on here and made a really... That made it sound like Melissa's dead. She's not dead. Yeah, <laughs> she's not dead. She's just... She's just... Her real presence isn't here oh, okay. because she's not communing with the you pod. Need get, you need to get me and Melissa on here at the same time. I know. Yeah, well, so I, I think that, you know, she came on here and gave this really awesome defense of a literal reading of Paul saying you can, like... um receive communion to your own damnation. And I think that this is an example of how that would work. If you do not seek to live in peace with the people that you are in communion with at that table, that's a place where you are like then, I think, receiving it at least at the very best in like a dishonest, in a dishonest way or an unfaithful way. But to the point about the hierarchy of the church, every year when we give our invitation to the observance of a Holy Lent, we, you know, in the United Methodist Church, and I think in the Episcopal Church, we read this long thing about what Lent look, looked like in the early church. And one of the things we say is that it was a time when those who have been expelled from the community because of grievous sins are invited into a process of accountability so that they could be received back at Easter. And as far as I'm aware, I've never heard of any church that thought about a liturgical season that way. And uh, I think it just gets back to your point, Hannah. Well, and I think the challenge is I don't trust the church to do that, right? Because this is the power problem. It's the same way as you want to be able to say, oh, somebody who's like 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 Dean Hollerith, who's done great harm, shouldn't have to resign, but how can he minister in a way that doesn't give him power over the people he's harmed, but instead is about him figuring out how to serve them or him figuring out how to serve other people people who hold the shitty beliefs he holds, right? And how to, to make amends. Ministry should have space for that, right? Ministry should be about screwed up people helping each other. But we don't even have a way to talk about that, right? We have, well, either you're a priest who has the power to, as Carrie says, make Eucharist, right? Like who has the power to do these things that other people aren't allowed to do. Or we, we say you have to resign and resign your orders and now you don't have that power over anymore. So we don't even have the space. And we certainly don't have the space then to talk about Lent as a time for penitence and accountability and, and a corporate process, because any corporate process we have is going to be totally corrupted from the beginning by the fact that it's being run by the church and being run by a hierarchical institution. So like, you know, there's there's a real problem there, which is that the, the kind of accountability we talk about in abolitionist spaces presumes a, a non-hierarchical and mutual understanding of community. And I think that Christian fellowship and ministry also presumes such a non-hierarchical and mutual understanding. And I don't think having orders needs to mean that there's a hierarchy between them, right? But at the same time, the, the reality of how we've structured it is like, you know, once you're once you're ordained, you're in charge. And that that leads to, I think, also tremendous harm. Yeah, well, I, I think I that, also to be clear, I didn't want Dean Hollers to resign his orders. I, I just wanted him to not be Dean anymore, <laughs> which is a different thing. Which is a different thing. Yeah. I, and maybe there's a better, a better and more accountable way for him to exercise his ministry, right? But we don't have a lot of space for imagining what that might look like. Yeah. I I I feel like I want to say that I do think that uh, communion can be a means of grace, even though I just need to counterbalance. Uh, I, I because I not a, I didn't say means of grace. I said a means of conversion. Oh, conversion. Okay, uh, which I, thought, I think is a big difference. Okay, I I might argue for that still too. Maybe not like moment. Maybe not immediate conversion, but I think that. <sighs> I might just be an innocent and I might have drinking the Kool-Aid from all of my ordination stuff. But I think that there is a place 
how to say it without uh, inviting clericalism in. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think that I, I think that there is a place for clergy, and, and maybe it's just a, a being able to rethink uh, the way that we do see how they work. But I think there is something important for how how clergy do uh, make communion, uh, if we're going to use that language, or or preside in a way that is that, that invites people into something that is a mis- mystery. And and maybe part of it for me would be them acknowledging that mysterious aspect that they don't actually control it, that they are inviting it in. Um, I just I hate to lose any kind of sense that somebody can be redeemed in a moment, like just like snap of a finger redeemed. And I know that might make me seem naive, but, uh, and, and I, I might be misstating your point, Isaac, but for me, like, I want to believe that Dick Cheney can walk into his Methodist church and be like, oh, fuck, I, I, I've, I'm, I'm, I've been convicted by all this shit I've done. I don't think that's going to happen, but I want to believe that that happens. I don't know. I'm naive and innocent, I guess. I think there's two points here. And Brian, I think I agree with you on both of them. The first one is, I should say, I do, I'm not against the existence of clergy. Um, <laughs> I actually think there is value in having people who understand their vocation as this sort of mediation of mystery, right? I am not against ordination. I am against the way in which we've said, ah, yes, and then the rector is in charge of the parish. Yeah. Like, I am against the, the hierarchical way or the way in which, frankly, the ministra- the ministration of communion gives you the right to refuse to give it to people, right? I think that imposes a power that's that's challenging. So what I'm, what I'm for is more mutual accountability around our clergy relationships so that we're not in our ordination process is trying to say we got to keep the bad people out to be sure they don't do harm once they're in power because we're not granting clergy that kind of power, right? We're making sure that clergy are circled by relationships of accountability that keep them from having power that they're going to use in bad ways. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. That's, that's one. The other thing is I actually also sort of sympathize with the idea of communion as a means of conversion, but I think I think maybe this is a good place for us to to circle around to the stuff that I know Isaac really wants to talk about about the atonement because for me the reason that communion can function maybe as a means of conversion not immediately but has to do with the fact that even when we can't be in solidarity with people who have misused their power, Jesus still is, right? And so for me, there is something absolutely essential about the fact that communion is Jesus himself who is there given into the hands of sinners, given into the hands of people who have done real harm. And that's the thing that makes it a means of conversion. It's not just the mysterious working of the spirit in a way we don't understand, but it's very much this scandal that Jesus, this, this this obscene reality that Jesus is given into the hands of those who have done real harm. And that's, I mention it that way because that's also what's at the center of some of my like slightly wacky atonement theology is that I think there's a really, I think there's a really important reality for Christianity to, to address that idea that there is something like deeply wrong about this, deeply offensive about this idea that Jesus is given for those who have really done harm to others. And what does that mean about how we address harm? And that's sort of the the driving question behind the atonement for me. I think maybe before we get too far into atonement, it might, everyone who, like real heads know what (laughs) atonement theory is, but uh, everyone who listens to the podcast might not. So do you, can I just like tell people what atonement theory is as I understand it real quick? 
Carrie, just before you do that, I, I do kind of want to just like wrap up this first bit about this sort of institutional question we've been wrestling with, which goes back to how we started the conversation, which is to say, how do abolitionist practices challenge the church and its theology around accountability? The way that it, the biggest place where it challenges us is to question the roles of the of the hierarchical arrangement of the church's polity and structure. So I think that, you know, if we want to talk about like the place where it shakes the foundation the most, it's right there and how we've constructed the different levels of power. Can you be an abolitionist church when those are in place? But yes, now, uh, atonement theory. Oh, and the other thing I want to say, Brian, is that to put it like to defend John Wesley now that I've denigrated him, I guess, you know, part of what he was saying in the means of conversion is like, you know, he he loved to bag on rich people and tell them they were going to hell. And then he thought if a rich person goes up and receives communion and like wants to give away all their money, then boom, it's worked. But so I think John Wesley would say, if Dick Cheney heard John Wesley preach a sermon where he said, if you enrich yourself by going to, you know, by creating a, a war and kill a million people, then you're going to hell. And then he received communion and repented, then that would be like the, the necessary requirement. But do I think Dick Cheney going into whatever Methodist church where he's told everything about you is okay and wonderful every single week is going to be converted by the Eucharist just magically? Yeah. No. Anyway, yeah. okay. I agree. And, and just, I just want to say that too, that I think that that, my, my feeling on that is that I think that moment can occur, but then that moment has to lead into the accountability stuff that we've already talked about. The owning your own shit, right? Like, and and I would say that maybe he does still could take communion and, and have a self-conviction, but we'll, we'll, we'll go to atonement theory now instead. <laughs> Just not willing okay, to give so that up. Carrie's quick and dirty guide to atonement theory. Atonement theory. Title. Yeah. <laughs> the idea of atonement is basically like how humans were reconciled to God, um, like how how Jesus reconciled all of humanity to be uh, whatever verse it says, like who are, so that we're able to stand in front of the throne of God. <laughs> Clearly, I'm rusty on my Bible verses right now, but the. The one that most evangelicals have probably heard of or post-evangelicals grew up with was uh, penal substitutionary atonement theory, which is the idea that uh, God had to pour out all of his wrath and his anger with humans on Jesus. So uh, Jesus died on the cross, taking all of God's wrath uh, onto himself so that God did not pour out his wrath on humans. And that is how we are reconciled to God. And so it's only through our relationship with Jesus that uh, we can we can be in right relationship with God. And there are other atonement theories that, and Anna's going to get into hers. And if I said something wrong, I'm sure she'll correct me. <laughs> There's, um, sorry. Well, I was going to say the first thing I was going to do was actually offer a different definition of atonement as a working definition as well, which is not to say that what you said is wrong. It's just that it's not usually the definition that at least that's most operative in my work. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, but you should keep going. It's, it, it's absolutely orthodox and, and like, it's, it's, it's a good definition. It's just not the one I usually use. Great. Well, we'll get into it. Uh, there are other theories. There's like the ransom theory, which is that uh, we were being held captive by sin and Jesus came and ransomed us so that we are able to be in right relationship with God. There's the incarnational atonement theory so that because Jesus came and was incarnated into a human body, he then redeemed all of humanity through his incarnation um, and those are the three that I am most comfortable like speaking to, but that's, I mean, there's just a wide range of 
what people think uh, reconciles us to God. And Hannah clearly <laughs> has uh, even wider opinions. So, well, I, you know, I, I think it's not that I, I don't like the reconciles us to God language, but I don't think it's totally complete. And what I think comes out in all those theories you've expressed and, and thank you, because those are all really, those are all helpful. And I think taken together, they give us a picture is that like, for me, Atonement is is not just about reconciliation to God, but is about God's intervention in the brokenness of the world, right? So it's about God. It, it, atonement is God fixes the world, basically. Atonement is God intervenes in the harm we do to each other. And the reason I talk about it in that way specifically is because I am really interested in the interplay around the language of substitution, in particular, right? And in how the questions of like debt and guilt and substitution matter when we're looking at the fact that we really do serious harm to each other. And in that context in particular, I think it's really important that we first take a step back from like penal substitution, God is mad at us and Jesus is reconciling us to God, right? To instead say, what if what does it mean to think about atonement as the way that God is intervening in the harm we've done to one another and making it right? So that's, that's like a, a, a subtle shift, but I think it's related, right? Because when you talk about like incarnational atonement has these overtones of God comes to be with us in our brokenness, our alienation, right? God is in solidarity with our alienation and overcomes it somehow, right? And and substitution has this idea of like reconciliation that somehow God in Jesus comes in solidarity with us so that we can be right with God, right? Even in like its most toxic form, I think it has that. And um and and the ransom theory has, I think, very much this idea of like divine intervention in the brokenness of the world, right? So for me, the essential things about atonement are always this kind of emphasis on like intervention and solidarity. And what does it mean for God to act in those ways, which we can understand using a whole bunch of different lenses. Um, but but intervention, solidarity. And I would say also like non-retribution, how does atonement force us to help us recognize a, a non-retributive way of dealing with real harm without sort of making that harm go away? So that's a lot and I'll stop now. And <laughs> yeah, so I, I think that, you know, I yeah, Carrie's right that what most people are probably hearing, I would say the biggest source of atonement theology for most Christians, especially evangelical ones, is the music they sing. And I think that penal substitutionary atonement is like super present, especially in contemporary Christian music. And I, you know, I could specifically think of one song that I can't even remember the uh, the chorus to, but there's like a line in it where it's like, the father turns his face away because he can't gaze on sin. <laughs> like, you know, and so basically this idea that like, because sin exists, someone's got to be punished. And so right. what happens is that Jesus is punished for us in the crucifixion rather than us being punished by eternal damnation. So let's talk about what's, uh, how deep the father's love for us. Yes, I just looked well, it up yes. too. Let's yeah. talk about what's bad about penal substitution and then let's talk about what maybe is good. And I know I'm not even allowed to say that, but we're here till we get canceled, right? So <laughs> all <laughs> takes are being revealed. All takes revealed, what's, yes. What's bad is exactly what you just said, Isaac, that it says there has to be punishment for sin. And we can talk about the category of sin. It says God has to punish it. God can't forgive it or intervene or act in solidarity with us without punishment 
punishing it, right? And so it ascribes violence in God. Um, Rita Nakashima Brock talks about this as, as divine child abuse, right? That it says there's this distinction between God and Jesus, and then there's this abusive relationship, really, in which they are sort of separated and Jesus is punished so that God can forgive us and that it's something deeply dysfunctional. So that's bad. And it's also bad that it's been used over and over to reify punishment and incarceration and particularly sacrifice in very racialized ways. So like Nakia Smith-Roberts work, um, which is which is womanist theology, is essential on this. And she talks about the fact that all of our systems of of prisons and policing and all those practices are basically coming from this sort of this sort of substitution theory of atonement that says God's up here and there's little people down here and, and all the humans have to, you know, have to pay their debt to God. And so we end up replicating that system in our material practices by saying, well, the people who are criminalized, the people who are who are viewed as disposable, the people who are marginalized end up paying for it because that punishment, sort of that bureaucracy has to keep existing, right? That hierarchy has to keep existing. So that is bad. And I want to be very clear that that is bad. I also want to say that like, I, most of my experience has been more Lutheran than evangelical, but I find that like blood of Jesus stuff very moving, right? That, that I'm not quite willing to say, this 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 concept of substitution is is useless. Let's it doesn't work for us anymore. Let's get rid of it, right? Because I think that there for an awful lot of people, it is still a really profound and moving thing to think, oh, Jesus died for me, right? Jesus died somehow in a way which is about solidarity with me as a like broken and alienated individual. And so you can see this tension in like Paul Tillich, who is problematic, and I'm going to say that up front, but I still like some things in his thought, right? You can see this in his theology of the cross, which is about human, he talks all the time about human alienation, and David Peter says he's a theologian of moral injury, which I think is really interesting, and he talks about human alienation, and he says God enters into our human alienation, right, totally participates in it, and by doing so shows us that we are accepted, and so there's like both sides of it there, right? There's like this solidarity. Now, that's not a, a penal substitution, but it does have that sort of element of like, what does it mean that God is willing to do this for me, which is, I think, what people find so appealing about like that music, right? But also, I think the other question that's provoked, right, by that sort of theology of sin is like, what do we do about the fact that harm is real, right? What do we do about the fact that like, harm imposes a debt. And Danielle Sered, who runs a restorative justice program, talks really well about debt and the idea that when you harm someone, you owe them a debt. And I think that's interesting because there's so much debt language in like atonement theology where we owe this debt to God. But what if instead we owe these debts to one another and that's real? And so atonement can be, I think, a way to ask those questions and to like wrestle with the reality of that harm, right? And this is where I think abolition is important because abolition requires us to wrestle with the really hard cases, to really like look harm in the face and say, what are we gonna do about this? And I don't think it's as simple as saying, well, the answer to harm is forgiveness. God forgives us, we forgive each other, nothing is owed, right? God has, has made it all go away, 
Like there's something deeply unsatisfying, I think, about leaving no room for the wrath of God, right? Because of course God is angry, not about sin because it offends God, but God is angry because we are angry when people get harmed, right? We are angry when we are harmed. We are angry when people we love are harmed. It is right to be angry when people are harmed. It is right to feel that something is owed. And so there's this question, I think, of like, how is atonement dealing with that? How is atonement saying, no, when you've done harm, you do owe something. And we don't want it to be turned around in punishment or suffering, right? But we also want it to be recognized. And I think that sort of complicated space of questions is where the cross sits. And then there's a whole lot of different different ways we can interpret it, right? I think that, you know, I'm actually also here to do a little bit of defense for uh, penal substitutionary atonement, but I think in a different way than than how you just did, Hannah. But I do, I do want to respond to one thing you just said. I do think sin offends God because it's how we like hurt each other. I think, yeah, I think that makes God mad. I think scripturally we can say, Sin makes God really fucking angry. But it's not like petty. It's not like God's like, oh, how dare they? It's because we right. hurt each other. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I think that that's part of the problem is that, you know, most most white people's definition of sin is more like um they thought about jerking off rather than, you know, the Iraq war or something. So I think that the thing that I that I find helpful about penal substitutionary atonement is exactly what it what the uh, title of it comes from is that it is about the law. That at the fundamental part of what's going on there is that in the story of the, of Jesus's arrest and crucifixion, he is found guilty under the law of insurrection against Roman powers, and that his his preaching and his teaching is in deep conflict with the laws and powers of this world. And so what happens in the crucifixion and then subsequently in the resurrection is God's judgment against that system of law that crushes and kills life, you know, still to this day. I think there's a very, um, you know, so I think when we take it back to just like the very basic level of sin in some way is about breaking that, that communal covenant and the fact that humans can say that they convict Jesus of doing that just shows how broken human power is. And I, I think that uh, that's the part of it that I I will sort of come in and defend because it takes it out of that Trinitarian context of this is something that has to happen, to happen between the Father and the Son and is more about God's intervention and judgment against the way we structure our common life in, uh, in a sinful way. Yeah, I, I, and I think that it's important to kind of lift up too that we're, we're reframing sin in this conversation a little bit than a way that a lot of people think about it. Because it, you could very easily have this conversation about homosexuality and, you know, and as, as a sin, quote unquote, that, that offends God, right? But we're reframing sin as something that causes suffering and harm. And I think, there's, I think that just has to be articulated a little bit because I think that we're very close to a, a similar conversation that an evangelical might have about this whole thing. And, and for me, I just, I'm tracking with it. I'm sure everybody listening is tracking with it. But I think that kind of what hinges on this is that idea that we're using sin as something that's systemic, that harms other people, that creates suffering in the world uh, and is well, not necessarily a, um, yeah. I don't think it's just systemic. I think it's also about individual oh, harm. But sure, I do think sure. this is the place where abolition, again, is affecting our theology because abolition says 
instead of talking about crime, right, which is socially constructed by our laws, we're going to talk about harm. And so what I'm interested in is essentially instead of talking about sin, which is theologically constructed, we talk about harm. But Isaac, I think you're making a really good point about the law. And particularly, I think what the crucifixion stands in judgment of is retribution. So like all my cards on the table, right? When I think about, when I think about substitution, I start with this question. It really started from like, a, it actually came from uh, Morgan Guyton's blog. He was talking to evangelicals and he was saying, well, if you believe that Jesus paid the debt for sin, then why are you still punishing people? And I think that's a very provocative question to be like, what if this punishment is intended as the end of punishment, right? What if this is the end of retribution? And so what does that look like, right? So for me, it's not just about law. I mean, I think the fact that Jesus is convicted by like human laws means he's in solidarity with those who are criminalized, right? And if we're making this distinction between crime or sin and harm, those who are criminalized are not necessarily guilty, right? It's it's a social construction. It's, it's used against marginalized people and people of color, and particularly Black people in this country. That's who's criminalized. And Jesus is definitely in solidarity with them. But I think Jesus is also in solidarity with the guilty. And when we look at like the reality of harm, right? Not setting aside the questions of like crime, sin, how we define it. When we look at the reality of harm and suffering, for me, there is a debt that you owe when you have done harm to somebody. That debt exists and it should not be like turned back on you in retribution, right? So this law of retribution, as we've kind of constructed, it says, oh, you owe a debt. Well, you can pay your debt to society by going to prison, right? That retribution is fundamentally about imposing suffering and saying, look, this pays the debt. And so where I see substitution fitting in is that essentially we've made this like almost quasi-economic concept of debt, like it's a fungible commodity. You can turn it around in suffering. And Jesus goes and sticks himself in the middle of that and says, well, now I have the debt. It's not being put back on the guilty person. And when you see it imposed upon Jesus, who we think of as like the innocent suffering one, essentially it undoes that logic of retribution. It exposes the logic of retribution as something that is itself violence. And what that allows for then is for this divine like solidarity with people who are criminalized and and victims right and people who have been harmed by violence including state violence but also with people who are guilty of harm it allows for god to be in solidarity with them but in different ways and when i say people i should be really clear that it's not like there some people are victims and some people have done harm right like every one of us is has been harmed and has done harm. So this is not about setting up a binary, but in fact about deconstructing that binary by being like, God is in solidarity with us in both ways, right? Because each of us are in both of the, each of us are guilty and also each of us have been harmed and have suffered. And God is in solidarity with both of those, but in a way that doesn't say, oh, well, there's no difference. It's a way of getting past that like sort of false unity of forgiveness and reconciliation without accountability, right? It's a way of saying, no, we're going to deconstruct retribution. You don't get to use retribution to say some people are guilty, some people are innocent, and you should suffer when you're guilty. But you also don't get to say, well, God has forgiven everybody, and so shouldn't we all just live at peace? Because the reality of that debt doesn't go away, right? And it can't be like discharged by punishment on the person who's guilty, and it can't be discharged by punishment on Jesus, and that's what the crucifixion shows, but it also can't, you know, but it also doesn't go away, and yet God is in solidarity with us, and we can be in solidarity with one another. It's for why we need 
multiple gospels because in one you have forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And then in another, you have Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom today, you'll be with me in paradise. You know, the one to the, to the part of us that's done harm and the other to the part of us that suffered harm. And I think that the other thing about it is that, you know, again, we get back to that, the force of the law, when someone is harmed under the law, a damage is created in the eyes of the law. And the way that you resolve that is um, by paying for that damage. And, you know, that this is coming from a really great book on debt by David Graeber. He, he starts the book with uh, a whole chapter about the moral significance of debt. This is also where abolition connects to Jubilee, which is that, you know, when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts, it's not just a literal like sort of moral harm, sin debt. It's also like your actual debts of money that you owe. And I think that um, at the end of the day, part of what penal substitutionary atonement messes up that is pretty simple to fix is that Augustine has this, he, he does a pretty good job of just like wiping it out in one line, but he has a prayer in the confessions where he says, God, you pay our debts, but lose nothing. Like that's, that's the whole category of the divine, right? That there's a fullness there that does not lose when paying off the debt, right? That when paying off the damage, when healing the harm. So yeah, I think there's a lot to recommend it. It would recommend itself when you take out, when you take Anselm out of theological history. <laughs> well, and when you take out, when you don't do this Anselm Calvin, there's a distinction between Jesus and God, but, but assume mm-hmm. that the crucifixion is a unified divine act, which I actually don't think means you can't talk about alienation between the son and the father. I think that that sort of Trinitarian language can be useful in expressing divine solidarity and human alienation. But at the same time, that's always part of a unified divine act, right? So it's not about saying, it's not God paying off God, but it's instead, like you just said, God paying our debts and losing nothing, right? And it's saying, because that Jubilee tradition is also important, and like I shouldn't go through a whole podcast or two on abolition and not mention the Jubilee, right? And the relationship between sort of how do we how do we take when Jesus declares the Jubilee of God, what does it mean if we take that seriously in our material context, and why does it look like abolition? So I think that that payment of that, it's, it's being able to hold intention that like, payment of debt and also forgiveness of debt because neither one on its own is going to bring us that 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 real work of like transformative accountability right that real state it's like the the state the human condition is being in this state of knowing that you owe this debt of harm but also knowing that it can be healed and forgiven but also knowing that it's not going to be turned back on you in punishment but also knowing that you can't pretend it doesn't exist right and so we have all these different perspectives on the atonement and all these different, as you say, gospel perspectives, but also theologies, because it's a way of trying to get at that tension. And so like for me, the language of substitution remains a meaningful way to get at that tension. For other people, I know it does not, right? And there's been really good critique out of the feminist and womanist traditions of like, this does not work for us. And I think you know, this is where the power thing comes back. We don't get to say, oh, you have to believe this, right? We don't get to say, this is the view of atonement you must you must agree to, because if it doesn't work for you, it doesn't work for you and you should reject it. This is something that if it does work for you, though, I think there's, I think it's worth, you know, I, I think it's worth seeing how we can sort of turn those harmful concepts against themselves and reclaim, reclaim is almost too strong a word, but subvert them in order to like, 
undo retribution in order to say, oh, you've always believed that Jesus paid your debt. Well, gotcha. How can you still support punishment? Right. I think that is a, a, a valid and a politically valuable method to use sometimes without forcing it on people for whom it just doesn't work. This is where I would just say to all the resurrection skeptics that I see on Twitter that um, can you really be committed to abolition without resurrection? Because at the end of the day, we're saying that this is what kills me about resurrection skeptics. They're like, oh, do you think God is going to let like a lynch mob have the last word right. over over a person? Like, because that's what you're saying. You know, if there's a resurrection, then it's like, oh, well, like the way you died horribly is the last word about your life. And that harm <laughs> is never transformed or like revivified or or healed. And so, you know, I, I yeah. I think you're making St. Paul's argument for the resurrection, which is not the usual argument made against resurrection skeptics, because from the way the discourse goes, I think I uh, am a resurrection skeptic uh, in the sense that I am just not convinced the empty tomb narratives are historical. But I think that the point is that, resur- is that our conception of resurrection is totally wrong because resurrection is not about the like physical reanimation of Jesus's body that walks around. And it never was, right? Resurrection is about the experience of the eschatological within history. I was just reading John Sabrino, who talks about this in this gorgeous way. And he says, resurrection is an eschatological event that's experienced in history. And so, of course, we don't have the categories to talk about it. Because if we try to talk about it within anything that fits within history, it won't be like anything within history because it's the end of history that's broken into history. So I think, you know, I think there's a lot of room for resurrection demythologization without (laughs) undoing the fact that death doesn't have the last word. Well, this is where we should started because I couldn't disagree. I just couldn't disagree more. Um, But I will say that if you want a good of the empty tomb narratives as like historical documents, Wolfhard Pannenberg does the best one I've ever read in Jesus, God and Man. Um, Even though I, I don't have very much sort of invested in his argument, I think it's really persuasive. But the the last bit you said about, I mean, I love Sabrino, uh, a lot of his stuff, but... um, you know, if there is no physical resurrection, then the whole thing is out. Like everything about it says, is. I don't think he says it's not physical, though. I because I, you're right. I don't mean to convey that it is not material, right? I think it is a material reality that transforms material reality. I don't think our category of physical or historical are the right ways of talking about that material reality. But I want to be really clear that when I say demythologize, I don't mean oh, it's a nice story that doesn't, isn't real, right? I think it's a question of, of how we talk. What I react to badly is when people are like, and orthodoxy says, you have to believe it happened exactly like this in this historical way, or else it's all meaningless, because I just do not think that is true. But I do think that affirming its material consequences is important. We'll have to do this when we have four say, minutes left. We, we, yeah, episode three on uh, the resurrection. Yeah, and it, this might this might be a the, we passed we passed my level of ability to engage in this discourse probably ten minutes ago. Uh, so I've just been I've just been another listener. So now we have one thousand and one listeners. Yeah, one thousand and two. Because oh. that whole time I was just like, I don't know. I'm just a resurrection truther, I guess. <laughs> Me too. I'm basic. <laughs> I'm just a basic. Yeah, but it, it, I think it is interesting. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> I don't have any theories about it, but I do have uh, a fight corner. So if we wanted to maybe uh, finish up the discussion, or or, or I can go into it. Um, should Hannah? Is there stuff you want to plug before we do the fight corner? 
if you want to read more about any of this, you can check out my site, christiansforabolition.org. We've got every week, every Tuesday, we're posting things from the lectionary for the help of preachers so you too can preach about abolition and make your congregation mad. <laughs> Such an awesome tool. And I will say, Hannah, last year gave me some great advice in preaching that I think about every week since then, which is never like... Hannah told me, I don't end sermons with what people should do. I end sermons by talking about what God's doing and how they can be a part of it. And it's like helped me avoid so many bad sermons ever since. So that's uh, actually Fleming Rutledge's advice on preaching. I stole it. Well, she got canceled for some bad tweets. So now it's Hannah's <laughs> advice on preaching. <laughs> All right, Carrie, five corner. Oh my goodness. Uh, so I've, I've come in hot on the last few fight corners. And so this one's going to be short and sweet, but welcome to the fight corner, all incense. I hate incense. <laughs> and as an Episcopalian, uh, Hannah's already disagree. <laughs> I, I hate incense and here's why it's one of my personal migraine triggers. Uh, so every time I go to church, I get a migraine. Uh, I think it just smells bad. I think it smells bad and I, I don't care for it. Also, gay people more likely to get migraines. So actually it's homophobic if you like incense. <laughs> this is your hottest take. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and I, I would say that there's a strong correlation, perhaps not causation, but correlation between people who really love incense and people who hate fun. So there you go. <laughs> There's my incense fight corner. I'm going to bring it back to this question we've been having about multiplicity and about having a multiplicity of opinions and a multiplicity of theories and, and spaces that resonate with different people. And particularly where we talk about an abolition, like what does it look like for us to build spaces that are safe for survivors? And I wish we'd had time to talk about that more. What does it look like to build spaces that are safe for survivors and also to build spaces where people can do accountability work and to recognize that those may not be the same space and that this like undifferentiated view of the Christian congregation may not give us the flexibility we need. And I think incense is a great example of that because I do not think you should have to be in a space with incense if it gives you migraines because that is harm. And I also love incense. And I think it's okay to recognize that those can be different spaces and that part of our like Catholicity is having the ability to hold different spaces for people with different needs who are doing different work. The ecumenical movement of whether or not you let a priest blow smoke at you. <laughs> or a non-priest. Non-priest, yes. Let's not be yes. hierarchical about it. Thurifers and such. The only people who have hierarchy you give two shits about it. Sits. All right, so just get oh, comfortable no, I, with that. I want, some I want anarchist incense churches. I mean... <laughs> Uh, yeah, you know, uh, Donna, who was on the episode about the Capitol riot, when I was complaining once about the itineracy program and in the Methodist church and uh, why it was bad, she was like, it's bad because you're put in a position of authority over people who would never choose you to be an authority over them and who should never, and y'all should just never be in an unhealthy relationship like that against your will. And I was like, yeah, that's it. And yet at the same time, in my ordination papers last fall, I had to write an essay on how I was fully submitting myself to itineracy. So uh, UMC, you're in the fight corner too now. Oh, well, <laughs> Submitting is okay. It's the authority over that's bad. Yeah. Well, uh, that's the end of my fight corner, which Hannah made much nicer than I, than I could have. Uh, is there anything else you want to plug, Hannah, before we head out? Good. Thank you. Thank you for having me, having me back. It'll never happen again, right? 
<laughs> no, we're coming back to fight about the resurrection. And- oh, okay. <laughs> you guys need to send us a reading list beforehand so I can keep up with this. But also perhaps talking about making spaces for survivors. Yeah. I would be interested in that. But yeah, today, yeah. truly, all takes have been revealed. Oh, God, yeah. Well, and, and also talking about the way that survivors are so often like sort of their safety is used as an argument against abolition. I think we should address that in the future too. And finally, just on on the atonement stuff, Lynn Tonstad's first book, God and Difference, is really, really good on on all of this, especially the Trinitarian language stuff we've we brought up. So I'll plug that. Cool. Thanks for coming on, Hannah. Thank you. Well, all takes truly have been revealed. Join us next time. Like and subscribe.